Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is Keen on Democracy. The San Francisco-based writer Larry Downs is the author of five books, including this year's best-selling Pivot to the Future. He's probably best known, however, for his first book, Unleashing the Killer App, which in 1998 sold 200,000 copies and was one of the first big hits about the internet. So to begin our conversation, I asked Larry what today, 20 years after the publication of his iconic book, is the new killer app. A chill is enveloping the world. Everywhere I go these days, the conversation is the same. Everyone is fearful about the fate of democracy in our digital age. The same worried question is on all of our lips. What or who is killing democracy? Everybody wants to know. There's certainly no lack of suspects. Trump, Putin's trolls, Mark Zuckerberg, authoritarian populism, the wall, Victor Urban, fake news, Brexit, Bolsonaro, surveillance capitalism, Erdogan, Twitter, or last but certainly not least, the president of the People's Republic of China, Xi Jinping. So what's up with democracy these days? Is it really dying? Or is it simply shedding its industrial analog skin and updating itself for our networked digital age? That's the subject of this podcast series. This is a show featuring conversations about the most important issue of our age with some of the world's most incisive thinkers. I hope it both provokes and enlightens. So it's hard to imagine a time when there were no tech books, but back in 1998, people didn't read books about technology until a man called Larry Downs wrote something called Killer App. Larry, today in 2019, more than 20 years after Killer App, what is the Killer App? <laughs> well, it may become more literal than we expected. I mean, 20 years ago when I started writing on this stuff, of course, everything was bright and rosy and tech's future was unlimited. Now, of course, we're entering, I don't know, it's the terrible twos or middle age or something. But obviously, this is a period when tech is getting a lot more scrutiny and a lot more criticism. And frankly, some of it's deserved, some of it isn't. Your new book, Pivot to the Future, bestseller, suggests that the way to quote-unquote pivot to the future is not through government intervention, not through regulation. Is that fair? You've always argued, I think, through your career that innovation is best realized through the market rather than through government. Yeah, I mean, it really has to be, for better or for worse. The reality is, of course, and this hasn't changed in the last 20 years, but technology improves at a very fast pace. You know, we can more or less say Moore's Law is the driving force of that change. And that means that we get better, faster, cheaper, smaller, use less electricity in all the tech that we've worked with in these last 20 years. The market is by no means perfect, and we can certainly talk about places where it's broken down, but the reality is that governments by design move very slowly and very incrementally. It's just a terrible fit for trying to regulate change when something is changing right under your feet, even as you're signing the legislation. Mark Zuckerberg, of course, famously said, move fast and break things, and that's exactly what he and his fellow entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley have done. But the fact they've broken things means that government has to act, don't they? Well, it depends on who's going to come around and fix it. So what I think has been operating more or less successfully for this last period is that, sure, the companies have broken things, the tech has broken things, they've broken markets, they've broken industries, they've broken consumer relationships, but then another generation of tech comes along and makes it better. 
And as long as we have that kind of a model, then the breakage is actually for the good. As I said before, though, we've now reached this kind of middle age or the terrible twos of tech. And some of the things that have broken haven't been fixed by another generation of entrepreneurs. And it's certainly appropriate for regulators and government to step in. Then we get to the problem of, did they know how? Well, let's use the example of Facebook. Several guests in this show have suggested that Facebook is a huge problem and that it needs to be actively regulated. Are there examples of innovators fixing the problems of Facebook, the problems of privacy and monopoly and fake news? Well, yeah, it depends on what problem is that you're pointing out. And by the way, and I'm no apologist for Facebook. I think the company has made terrible mistakes and they've compounded those mistakes by uh, apologizing and then not fixing the things that have already gone wrong and then continue to do more things wrong. They've really made it a very difficult environment, frankly, for startups and other tech companies as a result. And a lot of the scrutiny the tech is getting is because of some things that Facebook has done. But how do you fix them? Well, you know, big story the last six months or so has been, we have to break them up. We've got lots of candidates on the campaign trail in the US saying the solution to the monopoly of Facebook, I'm not sure what it's a monopoly of, by the way, but the solution is to break them up. And yet, if the problem is that they have too much of our information, or they're not very transparent about how they use it, or not very responsive about how they use it, breaking the company into component parts does nothing to solve that problem. Antitrust is a convenient tool to use but it's a bludgeon. It's not a scalpel. And many of the problems you're describing, a lot of the problems that we've had are because of criminal enterprises who have gotten a hold of information and made bad use of it. Antitrust is not going to fix that problem. Larry, it's not just Facebook that is being accused of being a monopolist, an illegal monopolist. It's also Google and Amazon. Are you suggesting that Amazon and Google shouldn't be investigated on the antitrust front? Are you suggesting that the Europeans have led us up a blind alley? Well, antitrust is very different in the U.S. and in Europe, and always has been. The problem here in the U.S. is we have the regulators and the candidates just, you know, they want to investigate it all. They just want to break things and see what happens. Well, the problem is that the way antitrust has worked in particular in this country for at least the last 20 years is you don't have a case unless consumers are being harmed. And consumers are not being harmed if prices aren't going up as a result of these behaviors. Of course, most of the products and services we're talking about from the companies you mentioned are free. So prices clearly aren't going up. In the case of Amazon, the complaint is that they charge too little and that as a result, they're putting other businesses at a disadvantage. Antitrust is not set up to solve that. And it's amazing to me to hear these candidates all talking. Many of them are you know, members of Congress now. None of them have proposed any legislation to change how antitrust works. They're not proposing new standards or things that are specific for the information economy or for tech companies. They want to apply the current law, but the current law just does not serve the purposes that they're using it for. So are you suggesting there's nothing valuable about a new school of academics, particularly within American universities, who are trying to rethink antitrust law? Yeah, I don't think they're academics at all. I think they're advocates. Propagandists? They're propagandists. They're polemicists. They have no legal case to make. They have no legislation to propose. They just don't like the outcome. And they're trying to sort of force fit one body of law that's very well established, that has been really quite stable for the last 100 years, take the last 20 years, to work as a solution that it just isn't set up to provide. What about privacy, Larry? There's more and more concern about the information that these big tech companies know about us. The big data revolution seems to be one that Shoshana Zuboff, at least, 
previous guest on this show, described as surveillance capitalism. Is that another bogus issue? It's not a bogus issue, no. I don't think so at all. I think, again, there are definitely problems of uh, transparency. There are definitely problems of unequal exchange. I mean, we give the information in exchange for lower prices or for free services. That's worked quite well, but it may be that that exchange is out of balance. But the general idea that information is a good, that is something that has value, that I think is fundamentally correct. And it's a question of responsible use. And in fact, we have situations where it's not being used responsibly. Frankly, we already have laws in place, both in the US and the EU, that could be enforced much more intelligently, much more vigorously, solve a lot of these problems. But to say that, many of the specific examples that come up when I talk to legislators, they talk about Cambridge Analytica, they talk about the Equifax breach. These are criminal enterprises, not the companies themselves that did the actual harm. These are problems of security. These are problems of encryption. These are problems where criminal law needs to be enforced. And again, where criminal law does exist, it's largely an enforcement problem. And I think for some companies, some very bad actors who just aren't being responsible. Larry, you've had a long-time column in the Washington Post. You've also held positions at Georgetown University. So you know how DC works. Yeah, unfortunately. Has the zeitgeist shifted? Are Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and even Trump's view of Silicon Valley, is that the future? Has the global regulatory landscape changed dramatically, at least the political perception of it? Ah, well, those are two very different questions. So I'll answer them because they have two different answers. I think, yes, the attitude towards tech has certainly shifted. In the last couple of years, it's gone from rosy projections and happiness and sunshine and so on to very dark things. And there's reason for that. I mean, it's not just orchestrated by the anti-Googles or anti-Facebooks and anti-Amazons of the world. I agree. I don't know that the extent of the backlash is uh, proportionate. But yes, definitely we've reached a point where now there are social problems that need to be addressed. But the second part of your question is, has the regulatory landscape changed? No. Certainly the Europeans have been more aggressive about enforcing things. But in the United States, we have not passed one new law. And I would predict... As a longtime Washington observer, we will have no privacy law legislation. We will have no cybersecurity legislation. We will have no legislation of any kind, antitrust, anything having to do with tech. Nothing will pass before the 2020 election. Do you celebrate that? Um, I celebrate it, but probably not as enthusiastically as I would have five or 10 years ago. Why? Well, as I say, five or 10 years ago, I think the problems were pretty modest and the capacity of government to do something about them was very slim. I still think the latter is true. I don't think we have any expertise in Congress, certainly in the regulatory agencies, very little expertise. So in some ways, if they did do something, they would probably make things worse. But my hesitation about being as enthusiastic as I once was is, yes, I think now there are some genuine problems in which smart regulation, but more importantly, smart enforcement could be helpful. We just don't have the capacity to do that in our current system. Larry, you've always been very good at understanding or forecasting the political consequences of new technology. Are the technologies now on the horizon, particularly AI, but deep fake technology, blockchain technology, are those technologies going to change the rules of the game or are they just version 2.0 of the internet? Well, and we could add to that list things like, you know, algorithms, uh, that's, of course, part of AI and, and machine learning, and a couple others, you know, virtual reality, robotics. They're definitely sort of what you might think of, and we talk about in the book, as kind of the next generation of disruptors coming. 
they will have a profound impact on industry structure and ecosystems. And as a result, yes, they'll have significant social consequences. And as a result of that, obviously, they will merge into the political in ways that I think is difficult to predict. But there's no doubt this sort of awareness of tech and its impact on society, it's not going away. It will get more intense. And eventually, we may actually get new ways of regulating it, smart ways of enforcing those regulations, or maybe we'll just get a lot of bad laws. Well, let me suggest a couple of areas where I would guess at least a regulatory response will become unavoidable if certain things happen. The first is AI and jobs. If it becomes increasingly clear that, you know, whatever economists are predicting, 20, 30, 40% of jobs are lost through AI and they're not being replaced, then presumably there has to be an enormous regulatory response. And I think the second area is in terms of deep fake. If we do indeed have technology, which will mean that it will be impossible, technologically at least, to distinguish between fake and truth, then once again, it becomes almost unavoidable that government steps in. Yeah. That's a question. I'm curious as to your response, because you've always been quite skeptical, as you've already indicated, about the role of government when it comes to tech. Yeah. So, uh, first of all, I, I'm not convinced that AI will have that kind but of But if it effect. does. But if it does, um, you know, then we're kind of back to the sort of the 19th century, the Industrial Revolution, automation in the last century. Obviously, you know, there were huge fears about what it would do, and there were government responses, essentially creating a social safety net, particularly for kind of not the next generation of workers, because they'll find things to do, but it's for the current generation of workers. So it's be like something like guaranteed minimum income. Yeah, or Social Security you can actually live on, and healthcare that actually works. That, I think, makes sense to talk about. And probably, you know, there's a dividend from the productivity gains that would pay for, but effectively, early retirement for a generation of workers who aren't able to adapt. I think that's the worst case scenario. I think the younger generation, no matter how bad the displacement is, they would be able to adapt. Well, they can always drive Ubers, although in the future, um, no one will be driving Ubers, will they? Right. Well, if we're lucky, no one will be driving. I mean, this country, we have 40,000, 50,000 deaths a year from all of them a driver error. Human beings are terrible drivers. I would be delighted if we could get all human drivers off the road as soon as possible. But there's some astonishing number about the number of white males employed in the driving business. Yeah. You know, honestly, they cannot be retrained to be programmers. That's a delusion. And we had this before with professions, you know, elevator operators, switchboard operators. When certain things are automated, you do have a generation of workers who are retired early. And the real question for society is, do you support them or do you not support them? And the risk, obviously, is if it's a big enough group and you don't support them, then you risk revolutionary change, social revolution, violent or otherwise. We've got a long history of that in the last thousand years. So, Larry, let's pivot to the future, the title of your new book. What needs to happen to avoid those violent consequences, given that these technologies, at least in the long run, are pretty inevitable, aren't they? Yeah. Well, obviously, the most important thing to happen is that we dial back the rhetoric of hatred and revulsion at tech. But aren't you exaggerating that? No. <laughs> no, I'm not. Where's the evidence? What's the evidence? Did you watch any of the debates, sort of first set of debates, when they should be talking about immigration and foreign policy and things that the government is actively screwing up? It's much easier to say Amazon is ruining business in America. It isn't, and it's obviously a pleasant distraction because it's easier to do that than to talk about the real problems. But all right, so let's put that aside. So we don't necessarily agree on toning back the rhetoric, but I think the real problem is the government has no expertise 
to regulate new technologies, especially disruptive ones, especially ones that are changing quickly. In the United States, for many, many years, we had something called the Office of Technology Assessment. That was a neutral, nonpartisan group that informed Congress about technology change. Newt Gingrich sort of wiped it out during his contract with America. There's been talks about bringing it back, and it was extremely useful. That's just a starting point. We need something like that because, you know, we still have hearings, even the most recent hearings about Facebook, members of Congress, you know, with no seeming sense of embarrassment, asking questions that made clear they didn't know what the difference was between Facebook and Google and Apple and Amazon. As long as they're not being given any kind of education on tech, how could we possibly expect them to do an effective job regulating it, whether they do it or not? Haven't the Europeans done that? Isn't Margaret Vestager, whether or not you approve of some of her regulatory policies, hasn't she educated herself about tech? Look, I'm very skeptical view of the EU's actions in the last 10 years. It's very convenient that the EU, its own economy, has no successful technology entrepreneurs, no companies in the top 30, whatever list you want to look at. In one sense, you know, my view of what they have done, it's really a kind of information trade war where they're singling out U.S. companies because they can't figure out any way to do anything on their own that's successful. They dress it up in the language of antitrust and consumer protection and privacy. But I think this is just protectionism at its most naked form. Isn't one solution to the problem of the techno-illiteracy of politicians in Washington, D.C.? Isn't it become almost a moral responsibility of entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley to go into politics? Because no. they clearly understand technology. Well, you know, I think a simpler solution is just generational. Obviously, of course, governments turn over very slowly, yeah. but sooner or later, and it may be unfortunately too late in some ways, but we have a next generation of people coming into government, particularly into the civil service, thank God, that's what actually gets anything done, who will be technologically literate, who will have grown up with it, who will understand its pluses and minuses. That's really our best hope is just to get those people in as soon as possible and get the illiterates out as soon as possible. I know you're not a huge fan, Larry, of Donald Trump. I never said anything one way or the other. Well, you're probably less hostile than some of our other friends in the Bay Area. But what's your take from the tech point of view of his presidency so far? Has he done anything? He has. It's a mixed bag, to be honest. His administration, I don't know about him personally, I, I'd rather talk about the administration, but you know they've done some good things in terms of getting the US ready for next generation mobile technology, for example, 5G. 5G. They've done some missteps on that front as well. So as you say, it's, it's a mixed bag. And I think a lot of it, what they haven't done, uh, certainly the antitrust division has been uh, very poorly behaved in terms of how it's looked at some of the mergers that are the natural result of some of this disruption, but they haven't been successful. So, right, they tried to block ATT Time Warner, but they didn't succeed. On some of these other mergers, they've kind of sent very mixed signals, but so far they haven't crushed anything that would actually have been ultimately very helpful for future tech and future entrepreneurship in the US. So, yeah, I give it a B minus, maybe a C plus, depending on where you're talking. Uh, you're a tough grader. That's not a bad grade from you. What did you give Obama? Well, I would give it a much higher grade, uh, honestly. What did he achieve that the Trump people haven't? Well, I think there was the environment. I think about from the Silicon Valley and the venture capital standpoint is, is there an environment where you're comfortable investing in very, frankly, risky investments? And obviously, the Obama administration was unbridled enthusiasm for tech. And of course, there were many, many, you know, Googlers and others in the administration, whether or not they actually kind of, you could 
tack a list of things that they accomplished, what they certainly did was made it clear that they were pro-tech. And from an investor standpoint, that was really what was most important and I think most helpful. Now, I don't think we have anything near that clarity. And if I were an investor and I was starting to think about AI or blockchain or virtual reality, uh, I would be asking myself, can I really trust that this open innovation environment, this permissionless innovation, as uh, Adam Theory calls it, is that going to persist in time for me to make good on these investments? When historians look back at the Trump presidency, one of the things, of course, they will comment on is Trump's use of Twitter. What do you make of that in terms of the history of the presidency? That's an interesting question. I mean, of course, there have been a lot of innovative presidents in terms of how they communicate. I'm sure people thought FDR using the radio to talk directly to Americans. That was quite revolutionary, quite disruptive at the time. The Kennedy-Nixon debates when they were on television, that was, again, using new media to change the nature of the interaction between the executive branch and people. Uh, certainly Obama and now Trump have pushed that into the next generation of technologies. But I see it as entirely consistent. Again, it's not without <laughs> that people were worried then about you would misuse television or misuse radio. I think you'd have the same concerns about using social media. And I think there are legitimate concerns. Do you think we can ever go back to a world where presidents use Twitter in a kind of edited way rather than in the, the intuitive, spontaneous way that Trump uses it? Well, see, once we've embraced a communication technology, the real question is what's the next technology and how will it be used by a future president? Does anything come after Twitter? Oh, sure. Not the end of the world? No. You know, we already have, you know, Instagram and Snapchat and... Which aren't profoundly different, really. They're just more visual. You say that as if more visual is not something that's profoundly different. I think visual is profoundly different than text. I realize as two writers sitting here, we shouldn't say that, but we have to acknowledge that that is a big difference. Well, spoken as an author, Larry, as I suggested at the beginning of this conversation, you've been in this game for a while. You wrote Killer App, the first big book about tech in 1998. Looking back over the last 21, 22 years, what's changed from your point of view as an author writing about technology? Well, I, obviously, the access to audience has really been the big change. When I wrote my first couple of books, you know, you go to a bookstore and you would buy business books, and I would be hired as a speaker to go to talk to user group meetings or industry uh, groups about what is the internet and what does it mean to you and why you should be involved with it or why you should care about it. Obviously, now the books are much more marginalized. It's a much smaller section of the bookstore dealing with the business and tech. And so, well, your last book sold more than 20,000 copies. It was a bestseller. It's pretty impressive. Yeah. And I believe me, I have no complaints. I'm delighted to have uh, loyal readers who follow me from book to book. But obviously, where I get my most interaction with people is no longer sort of a book every three or four years, or in your case, every couple years. It's much more immediate. It's, you know, there's the articles, it's the blog posts, it's the podcasts. And that's great. You can talk about things where your research is ongoing. You don't have to wait the whole long cycle. Of course, publishing hasn't gotten any faster, even though everything else has. So I'm glad that I have more outlets. Does the publishing industry have a future? An appropriate question on LitHub? Yeah, I always think so. I mean, I always tell publishers, whether it's newspapers or books or magazines, one thing that they always underappreciate is the value of their brand and how People understand that if it's a Harvard Business Review Press or if it's a Penguin Portfolio, whatever the imprint is, that signals quite a bit. And really, you know, very few publishers have understood that that's what their value added is. They see it more in the mechanics of we're the ones with relationships with the supply chain or with the production process. 
that's all the part that's that's really trivial or becomes less important. But the brand is is what will persist, and the ones that figure that out will survive. Larry, there are going to be people listening to this who want to write a book. They haven't written one before. They have an idea about tech, about nonfiction world, about the relationship between technology and politics, about antitrust or AI. Should they stop thinking about that? Is it an, an insane dream now to want to be a nonfiction author? Well, it depends on what you want to achieve by it. If you, you know, well, you want to make a living, you want oh, to make then, a yeah. name for, the, for yourself as you've done. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't start with a book. If that's your goal is to, as you say, make a living and make a name for yourself, there are much more immediate ways to do it. So I would think more about writing columns on Medium and other kinds of self-publishing platforms, podcasting, Instagrams. We know, we all know that YouTube stars are now making millions and millions of dollars. Well, I was more photogenic. How many of them? More than you would think. But, uh, you know, I'm not as photogenic as you are, so that's not really an option for me. You're also a keen observer of the media industry itself. It's changed dramatically over the last 20 years. How do you expect it to change over the next 10 years? You know, I have an article coming out soon on this. I've done a lot of research over the last couple of years on this, partly in the work I'm doing with the Aspen Institute Communications and Society Program. And my thesis is that the answer really depends on the demographics. So what baby boomers will want from media, what Gen Xers will want, what millennials will want, it's very, very different. And if you're a media company, first of all, you know, sky's the limit in terms of opportunity. The tech makes it easy to do all kinds of experiments. Content is king, in other words. But content, the bottom line is always content is king, whether that's professionally produced content or whether that's more amateur content, or whether it's self-produced content in the case of Snapchat and Instagram, that really, again, depends on what demographic you're trying to reach. And is the subscription model the future? Some version of it, I think, you know, advertising won't go away, and that's a good thing. We've gotten a lot of benefit from the exchange of tension for content or for subsidized or free content. But subscriptions, whether they're bundles, skinny bundles, individual channels, individual programming, individual authors. Subscription is also a great way, and we're seeing a lot of really interesting experiments. You know, about Patreon is a great example of this. I watch a lot of YouTubers and other sort of video producers who get themselves produced by having people commit to funding them, like patrons of the arts in the old days, monthly, you know, $10, $5. You get enough of those people together through the platform like Patreon, and you can actually make a living doing exactly the kind of writing and producing that you want to do. And you don't have to worry about subscriptions. You don't have to worry about channeling and so on and so forth. It's a great model, too. So a more intimate relationship between the creator and their audience. Yeah. You know, we're getting much sort of more narrow audience, but much more loyal audience. So if I'm really interested in a particular critic who writes about the history of film in an interesting way, that might not be a huge audience. But if we're very fanatically devoted to that particular content producer, it's a model that works for everybody. And finally, Larry, how does 5G change all this? Is it just more of the same, just more horsepower, or does it represent a fundamental shift in the nature of the entertainment economy? A little of both. I mean, 5G obviously is going to be, you know, in some ways, it's the next generation of mobile technology. Uh, we're already moving very rapidly towards everything being mobile rather than wired, and we're more mobile people. So certainly every producer, every distributor expects that their content in the future will be watched much more on mobile devices than on television sets sitting in their home. 5G is going to make a lot of things possible in terms of interaction, virtual reality that we can't do with networks today. 
in that sense, it'll be revolutionary. In other senses, it's more of the same. As you say, it's faster, it's better, it's cheaper. Once it's in place, it can make things possible and make things cheaper, which is always a good thing. You're listening to Keen on Democracy with your host, Andrew Keen. Hello, I'm Jason Sanderson, the producer of the show. Now we're about to take a quick break while we hear from our sponsors. Hi, my name is Steffi Czerny, and I'm the founder of the DLD Conferences. DLD is short for Digital Life Design and explores how the digital age fundamentally changes our world. Founded in Munich in 2005, DLD is now a globally connected community of thinkers, doers, and communicators. We host conferences in Munich, New York, Tel Aviv, Singapore, and Brussels. And we are very proud of our interdisciplinary outlook and even more so of our track record of discovering trend topics early on. Andrew Keen is a long-time, long-term DLD friend who has done many interviews at DLD conferences. If you like this podcast, you should join one of our events. Our motto for this year is optimism and courage. We want to put a really positive spin on recent technological developments from AI through blockchain to quantum computing and discuss which impact they have on business as well as politics and society. Visit our website at dld.co and apply for your ticket. Thanks so much for sticking around. Now, we've got a real big favor that we need to ask. If you like this episode and you've been enjoying the other interviews, we'd sure love it if you head over to the iTunes podcast app and leave us a review. If you'd like to hear more episodes, there's a subscribe button there and in all of the platforms like Spotify, Overcast and Google Play. So head over to one of those, subscribe, leave us a review, share it with your friends if you'd like, and we'd appreciate it so much. Be sure to check out our next episode every Thursday. And from all of us at Keenan Democracy, we hope you have a fantastic day.